0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Grounded Podcast with Pastor Matt Round. Speaking of Pastor Matt, he just returned from a trip to Israel, so we decided to give him a week off. So for this week, we will be going back to a sermon he preached in July of last year and answering the question, what does it mean to follow Christ? Now we're going to see that there's an unexpected path that his followers are going to have to walk and understand and consider as they come after him. Because Jesus is going to extend to them a very particular call. Look at verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, so not just Peter, he's speaking to the disciples, and in Mark it would say to the crowds gathered there. So he's broadened his audience. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. Disciple means learner. It means one who follows after. These men would have identified themselves and they would have been identified by others as those who were disciples or followers of Christ. And Jesus says, do you want to know what it will mean to be a disciple? Do you want to know what it would mean to learn from me and to follow after me? To follow after me is an invitation first to come and die. First of all, to die to yourself. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. At the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to understand that it is not about you, and it is not about me. My natural instinct, and yours too, is to preserve self at all costs, to watch out for self, to insulate self, to provide for self, to provide comforts for self. And Jesus says clearly that the first mark of discipleship is going to be a denial of self. And That would be difficult enough to process, but he doesn't just frame it in terms of denial. He, He frames it in terms of death. Deny yourself and take up your cross. Now, we wouldn't say this, but you and I have a very romanticized idea of what the cross is much of the time. The cross is on our cars, and it's on our clothes, and it's on our jewelry, and it's in our songs, and it's the symbol of hope and reconciliation, and it absolutely should be. Don't don't hear me. It absolutely should be. But you have to understand that at this point, when the disciples hear cross, they know what it means. And they don't just know what it means from drawings and flannel graphs and coloring pages. They know what it means from firsthand experience. The cross is not some sanitized, dignified way to die. It is a horrific, humiliating, prolonged public death. When our society does away with criminals, when we execute uh, final justice through the death penalty, it is done in private and it is done uh, in isolation and it is done behind closed doors and behind walls. This is not that. The Romans did not crucify you behind the high walls of a prison. You walked your cross to the place where you would die and then it was done in public along the roads at eye level so that men, women, and children could see the horror of what what was happening. It wasn't just this justice for a crime. It was a horrific deterrent that screamed out at everybody, don't you dare do the same. So you have to understand that's what the disciples hear when they hear cross. Take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. How far? How often? Deny yourself daily and deny yourself to the point of death. Take up your cross, die to self and follow me. And how often have I, and maybe you, kind of frivolously use that idea of, well, that's just my cross to bear. Everything kind of becomes our cross to bear. The old nagging knee injury is just our cross to bear, and the traffic on the way to work is our cross to bear, and the mother-in-law is our cross to bear. Look at your spouse, say, not talking about your mom, don't worry. All these things that are our cross to bear, can we actually read it in context? and say that a minor convenience in my life is bearing the cross of Christ. Now he says, not only am I going to die, but to be my disciple is going to involve you following behind me and doing the same. Now, does that always involve physical death? Of course not. There are many times in history when it has meant being faithful, even to the point of death, Uh, but it always involves a death of some sort. It always involves a death to self. And if we're honest, I think that's harder. We would all make these grand declarations that we are willing to die for certain things. Sometimes it's harder to die daily to things, though. I'm willing to make a grand stand at the end of my life and die for a cause and maybe even die for Christ, and I would certainly hope that that's the case. But am I willing to wake up on just another Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday and ask the Lord, what would you joyfully, gratefully, and humbly have me lay down at your feet today? How would you have me die today? How many of us would be willing to give up the whole of our life but would refuse to give up that part of our life that we really enjoy? That Jesus doesn't just make the demand. He helps them understand that to be willing to do this, isn't only this kind of harsh directive. It's really the only logical response. He brings them to this series of where they have to calculate the value of what they're doing. And when they do that, it makes sense that this would be the response. Look at verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We're gonna start talking about value and that statement sounds backwards. If you save your life, you lose it, but who loses his life for my sake will find it. It would seem natural that as we preserve our life, as we pursue our life, we would find our life. And he says, it's actually exactly the opposite of that. Because for the disciple of Christ, pursuing life and comfort are no longer our priorities. Uh, Now, we would nod our heads and affirm that. Yes, I understand that I am no longer called to pursue uh, the things that I would normally and otherwise pursue. But we have to understand that even in our specific cultural context, that is very, very difficult because to pursue life and happiness is built into who we are as a nation. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That sounds very good. I wrote it this morning on my way in. Just kidding. (laughs) Hopefully you recognize that. Declaration of Independence language. And I am profoundly grateful to live in a nation where that forms part of our founding documents. I am profoundly grateful that the founders of this country recognize that those things don't come from men, but that God is the one who grants life and liberty. But we also have to understand that those freedoms that we hold to be so precious, and they are, must fall a distant second to our pursuit of Christ, and that sometimes, maybe, just maybe, pursuing life and liberty and happiness might come into conflict with the fact that Christ has told me to come deny myself and to die on his account. I am not called as a kingdom citizen to uphold and to sustain my life, but to willingly and continually lay it down. And he goes on to say, for what will it profit a man if he gains the world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Here's the call. Now here's the value underneath that. Here's how you have to evaluate it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? If you could gain everything in this whole world, everything good and pleasurable that the world has to offer, at best, it lasts a lifetime and then it is gone. And what would you gain in exchange for something eternal? What temporary thing would you give in exchange for the eternal? It's like looking at a profit and loss sheet or a balance statement. What assets would you give up for the other? Paul writes very similarly to these things. Uh, When we go to Philippians chapter three, remember there he says, I was all of these things. I was from the right tribe. I was circumcised at the right time. I was a Pharisee. I had a zeal for the law. All of these things, not even worldly things, all of these religious things that we would think would be positives when it came to coming into the kingdom. He says, I count them all as loss for the sake of Christ. They're not good. They're not even neutral. He counts them all as a sum total loss for the sake of Christ. There's a difference in accounting here. There's a different reckoning. The world says, get what you can while you can, but the world has no ability to rightly understand the priority of the eternal. They have no sense where they're able to make this kind of value statement. So Christ says... uh, what will you give in return for your soul? What's your eternity worth? What is it worth to come into the presence of this kind of king? By this time in Matthew, we're prepared to begin to answer that question because we work through things like those kingdom parables back in Matthew chapter 13. And we remember that Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found and hid it again. And from joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. And we can almost picture that. It's a wonderful picture. A man just kind of walking through a dirt field, scraping his feet along and his foot hits something and he moves the dirt away and it's this unimaginably valuable treasure. And he looks around and he covers it back up and he goes home and he sells all that he has, liquidates every asset that he has so that he can come back and buy the field. Why give up everything? Because what he was able to give, to gain by giving up everything was absolutely worth it. He recognized that the treasure in that field far outweighed the sum total of every other good that he owned. And we understand here that Jesus is not talking specifically about the kingdom here in Matthew chapter 16. He is talking about the gospel and what it will mean to give it up and follow, give up everything to follow him. But it's a parallel idea. We're called to be able to measure in our minds the value of Christ. And to be willing to give up everything for his sake. And that's an easy thing to preach. And it's an easy thing to say when we haven't been called to give up much. And that might change and it likely will at some point as our country continues to move in the direction it is it is but it, it's a fair and penetrating question to ask what value do we place on christ and his gospel right now not someday in the future what might we have to give up but right now what do we die daily to give up what do we give for the sake of this king and his kingdom it is the sum total of my sacrifice an hour or two on a sunday morning and the final reason here the final part of this calculation that he gives is deals specifically with the fact that Christ is going to come again. Look at verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man once again, and if we were to turn back to Daniel chapter 7, we would see some very particular things about the Son of Man. As he comes to the Ancient of Days, he's given a throne and dominion and a kingdom, and that kingdom encompasses all all tongues and tribes and nations. And what we see here is Jesus pointing forward to this coming eschatological end times judgment that is being promised. Because when the son comes again, when the king comes again, he doesn't come to suffer, he comes to judge, to restore and to repay. Which means that as we look at these things in light of that coming reality, these aren't just theoretical questions. It's not just a nice philosophical thing to say, to pursue your life is to lose it, and to lose your life is to find it. It's not just an interesting moral question to ask, what would a man give in return for his soul? See, those questions are now put under the fire of divine evaluation at the coming of the king. And no one escapes because everyone actually answers those questions. Everyone answers the question of what will you give in return for your soul. Everyone pursues something. Everyone lives for something. Everyone either seeks to keep their life or to lay it down. And in the end, it's going to be absolutely clear whether you spent your life pursuing what was only good for a lifetime or whether you spent your life pursuing that which cannot fade, this eternal inheritance, this king, and his presence. And this sobering passage ends with the promise that it's very comforting. The passage actually ends with great comfort. And first of all, there's comfort actually in the fact that this is the way that he talks about judgment. What does he say? The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in glory. You go back to the beginning of Matthew's narrative, and what do we see? That everything about this coming, is characterized by humility, born in the most unexpected of places, the most unimpressive circumstances. The first ones who attend his birth and who celebrate him are shepherds from the field. He's raised in a nothing town. He's followed by nobodies from nowhere, not the men of high importance and great wealth, we know that now he's going to a cruel cross where he's going to suffer the wrath of God poured out against sins that were not his. But in these passages and in these verses we're reminded that it won't always be that way. That when he comes again it is not in humility, it's in glory. He's attended by angels, not just angels, but the son of man is going to come with his angels. I love that. They're his angels. He's the one who commands the hosts of heaven he's going to return with the right and the ability to judge mankind and now that promise carries over to verse 28 look at verse 28 truly i say to you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom and that verse has spawned books of disagreement and thankfully for you we won't cover all of those various options today we'll kind of hit these again later on in Matthew when we come to the Olivet Discourse and differing views on the kingdom. The good news is most of those views allow us to still be friends, but I will tell you what makes the most sense chronologically and contextually here. What is he talking about when he says that some of you aren't going to die until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom? If we were to read Mark's parallel passage, what will it mean that some of them won't die until they see the king coming in his power? I think what makes the most sense... What's the most reasonable is to see that this is referring to the transfiguration. Why? Because we don't have chapter breaks in the original documents here. If we were to just keep reading, now he goes and he starts to show three of them a glimpse of the glory of the Son of Man. They go up onto a high mountain and they see the humanity of Christ peeled back and for a moment his divine nature shines forth in a brilliance and a glory and a majesty that literally brings them to their knees. But but why say it this way? Why say that some of you won't taste death? until you see the son of man coming in his power. Isn't that a weird way to say it if it was only gonna be a week until they saw it? Well, no, because what had he just been talking about? I'm going to die and you are called to come behind me and die. And if you don't think that was a gut punch, then I don't think you've been following along and paying attention. He just ripped their worldview apart. But the comfort in that is that some of you are going to see a preview what this will look like. And by the way, when they see it, he says, don't tell anyone until after these things happen. And when you go through uh, what John and what Peter write later, that view of the transfiguration has a profound impact on how they see the Christ and how they hope moving forward. And we'll talk about that next week. Peter has just said that this is the Messiah, and rightly so. But now they've heard that Messiah is going to die and he bids them come and die with him. How comforting it would be to know that the death on the cross is not the end. The Messiah is coming again, that he's coming again glory. And by the way, some of you are going to see that. As we wrap this up, we understand that this is one of those places where it's easy to see ourselves in the passage. Right away, that should make us careful because the goal is not to go through the Bible and find ourselves in every passage. Uh, We are not David facing our own particular Goliath in life. That is not the point of that story in the least. In fact, the Bible is not about us unless we are talking about us as the redeemed people of God. It is about God calling a people to himself. But as we read through this, at the very least, we have to say it's pretty easy to identify with Peter, isn't it? To go from getting things very, very right to almost in the same breath, getting things unimaginably wrong when I trust in my own instincts. But more than that, in this passage, as disciples of Christ, we see our identity tied once again to Christ. He started talking about this back in Matthew 10, do you remember? Sending you out, preach, preach. Heal, but understand that they hated me. And so they're going to hate you. They called the master of the house Beelzebel. How much more are they going to malign you who follow after me? This is the continuation, really uh, the expansion of that understanding. We're identified with Christ in his humility and suffering. It's like Paul writes in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What a beautiful way to put it, that I have died to myself so completely that there's nothing left other than Christ living in me. But the beautiful other side of that is just as we're identified with him in his humility the wonderful promises to be identified with him in his death is to be found with him in his life romans 6 8 if we have died with christ we believe that we will also live with him first corinthians 15 as paul takes a whole chapter to go through the resurrection and why it was absolutely necessary for christ to die and to be raised again and how his resurrection is the foundation and the promise The foretaste of our resurrection. Resurrection bringing the hope of victory over death itself, which is exactly what we saw last week in a church that overcomes death. This passage is sobering. This is the turn. Now we're moving toward Jerusalem and towards suffering and ultimately toward the cross, but this passage is also the wonderful reminder and the resolution that out of suffering and death come life and salvation. First of all, we have to see the call of Christ in this passage. There is a gospel invitation here, but it might not be the gospel invitation that we are most familiar with or that we are most expecting. There are many times, particularly in our Western context, where the gospel gets watered down to the point of saying that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, or accept Jesus and everything gets made right. mother There's a grain of truth in those they fail to communicate the gospel. What is the call of the gospel? That there is a God, high, holy, and exalted, who made all things. And he made man and woman in his image, and he called them to live in fellowship with him through obedience. And they failed, and so have we. Every man, woman, and child that has ever lived has sinned and fallen short. We've pursued self instead of God. We have gone our own way instead of the way that the Creator has laid out for us. And that sin has a cost. Sin separates and sin kills. And there's nothing that we could do to bridge that gap to fill that void, to work our way back to fellowship and relationship with the God who made us. But God, in his mercy and in his kindness, made a way. He sent the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, who walked among us, who took on flesh, who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, but who did not stay dead. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die, but he was raised again, and he's coming again in power. And with those truths in place, we say that that gospel demands a response, that that king, that coming king, bids you to come and follow after him. But that will mean first that you come and die. The call is not so that you might have a more comfortable life. The call is not so that you might have the things you want most in this world. The call is not so that this life will be more tolerable, more comfortable. The call To Christ is the call to see this life as nothing more than temporary. A gift filled with beauty but filled with pain, but it is temporary. The call to the gospel is the call to consider the eternal. And what would you give in exchange for your soul? To be identified with Christ in his death is to be united with him in life. And as we preach that difficult, scandalous gospel, we tell people that it's worth it. That this king offers a coming kingdom and an eternal reward that will make everything in this life in comparison. And finally, we need to think through the cost to be counted. None of us, I'm sure, showed up here today and said, I am persevering and pursuing my life eh." above all things. Uh, Nobody would have shown up and walked through the doors here today and said, I'm pursuing my life at the expense of my eternal soul. That wouldn't make sense. That wouldn't register to us. But if we're honest, much of our time is spent doing things that distract from our call to follow Christ. And if we're going to step on toes, we might as well step on all the toes at the same time. So if we were to take a snapshot of our week, what are we pursuing? Could we tell by our time what we were willing to lay down and sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom? I work X amount of hours per week, and God has called me to do that to provide for my family. Absolutely true. But none of us are naive enough to know that there aren't two ways to work. There is a way to work so that that is your, sound, your source of provision and stability, and there is a way to work, or do you see that as a divine mission that God has placed you in in that place and time? There's a way to raise our kids that seeks their physical best, and there's a way to raise our kids that seeks their eternal and their spiritual best. There's a way to relax and enjoy time and rest that God has given us and it's a wonderful gift. And there's a way to relax and enjoy times of rest and refreshment that is a complete distraction from all the real things that we ought to be showing. And Christ puts this in the grandest scale possible. What good would it do if you gained the whole world but lost your soul? What good would it do if you had the best paying job? What good would it do if you had the greatest boyfriend or girlfriend? What good would it do if you had every Trophy and every accolade from childhood sports, what good would it do if you had? Fill in the blank. But at the end of the day, you lost your soul. Our problem is one of perspective because this world seems so big in front of my eyes so often. It is so easy for me to see this as all that there is. And it happens to pastors too. The sermon can be the only thing that I see at the beginning of a week if I'm not careful. And at the end of the day, it's just a talk out of a book. Or everything, every day, every moment is an opportunity for me to die to self, to take up my cross and to follow him, knowing that it will be eternal, absolute absolutely. absolutely worth it. We hope that you enjoyed today's episode and the importance of dying to ourselves. Next week, we will have Pastor Matt back in the studio to answer the question, what is the gospel? If you have a question of your own, please email it to us at groundedwithmattround at gmail.com or visit our website, groundedwithmatt.com. We'll see you next time.